Coming up, what an excellent day for mothers. and welcome to Minute 21 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. Okay, so our minute begins with Mary Karras welcoming her Timmy home. And it ends with Mary Karras saying that this is her house and she's not going anywhere. Right. So this minute actually starts with both of them uh, speaking in Greek. And I have a question here that maybe you can answer, Keenan. My guess is that the things they're saying in Greek are what they are also saying immediately after in English, though I wasn't able to confirm it. Um, but I've seen this done before in other films. Do you think that's the case here? Uh, maybe not the exact same, but but something you know innocuous that we wouldn't have to have translated, right? Right, right. Gets, gets the, the point across, yeah. Right. Was there a movement or a decision in Hollywood to start using subtitles at one point? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that there. It's not like all of a sudden, right? So so the, it changes very gradually, um, and I guess it would be about this time when we started started to do that um, in the mid nineteen seventies. So I don't know if you know this. Can we go back? Can we go way back? Sure, <laughs> sure. Let's go way back. Days of of early sound film. Mm-hmm. Um, so originally in silent film, there were there were no subtitles. What you would actually do instead is you would just take out the title cards, which were between the the film the the uh, video parts, right? The visual parts. You take out the the words, and so film was international. So, you know, mm. people knew the movies were coming from Hollywood or whatnot, but right. but they were localized and they were often censored even and they would change the title cards out. Mm, so okay. easy peasy, no problem whatsoever. <laughs> then sound comes and now we have to figure out what to do. There's no title cards um, to take out. So there's actually um, a, a handful of major films that are just shot twice in two different languages. Oh. So, so the Blue Angel, uh, where uh, Marlena Dietrich and Emil Yawnings um, and their director, um, uh, oh goodness, I love him. What is his name? Uh, Josef von Sternberg. Uh-huh. They all speak English and German because uh, <sighs> the actors are German and the director is uh, American German, American Austrian, and so they just do the entire movie twice. Um, and similarly, I don't know if you know this, but Dracula, Mm. the original Dracula. Oh yes. Uh huh. Yes. It, it has, there's a version of it that Spanish speakers say is better than the, than, you know, people who speak both English and Spanish tend to say that the Spanish version of Dracula that they shot on the exact same sets, but with different actors is better than the Todd Browning, uh, Bell Lugosi one. I have heard that. Yes. And I've seen, you know, I've seen, I've seen it, um, it's hard for me. I don't know. It's hard for me to to think that the Spanish one is better, but I'm not getting the nuance of of the Spanish. Right. right, I, think that's right. The, I think that's the difference for me. You would have to be a native speaker to understand like the subtle inflections, the the little you know. The, I believe hmm. so. I believe so. Um, and you know, I like the the guy who plays the the Spanish Dracula is um, is still very good, but I like. Mm-hmm. Bella Lugosi. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's unavoidable. It's like Bella Lugosi is Bella Lugosi, and it's like how do you how do you get away from that, right? Right. And we had him. Uh, the The legend of that is that he's he doesn't speak English well enough, so he's been given the lines, um, you know, to just memorize uh, what do you call it phonetically. Or oh, are we talking about Lugosi? Or are we talking Lugosi. about Lugosi? Oh. oh yeah, Lugosi. So um, I think that more recent scholarship is like that's not exactly true because here's an earlier movie where he has it, but that's the idea of uh, of why it's like I never drink wine and he has this really weird cadence to him right 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 they, they say part of that is because he's remembering his lines you know in chunks and not really knowing where the 
um, where the uh, the clauses are starting or ending. <laughs> but I don't know. I think that's a little bit overblown. But but we do have certain instances like that with Peter Laurie and his early um, his yes. early movies like the. Oh, um, and- and mm-hmm. folks, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Keenan, oh, but no. like I just I just want to jump on this really really quick. Oh, we're yeah. talking about um, so we're talking about Bela Lugosi and his uh, his weird voice. Um, <laughs> like if if you haven't figured it out, it's the Dracula voice. <laughs> oh yeah, what does Bela Lugosi sound? <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, it was just it was it was it was funny because I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you. It's like, well, you know, this uh, this wasn't his first language, and so he right. spoke in this voice, and I'm just like, I, like. F- just so you know, that's the voice that we get. It's the Dracula voice. It's right. so so anybody. That's yeah, Hungarian accent. That's that is that works, is right? that is a hundred percent unfiltered Lugosi, and that's why we have uh, Adam Sandler in his movie <laughs> doing the blah, Hotel blah, blah, blah. Transylvania. Yeah, Hotel Transylvania. Blah. Yeah, like blah. this is so so. If you're like if you're having trouble, uh, you know, imagining in in your mind, like when Keenan is telling the story about Lugosi, you know, speaking English and and having trouble with it. <laughs> That's the Dracula voice. Oh gosh, I, I I I guess I don't know. Well, I do know some Hungarians, but I haven't. They they speak you know great English. My my experience is that that most people from Eastern Europe who come to America to visit or to study they speak better English than than I do. <laughs> but like, what is a Hungarian accent? Is it just Dracula? Oh no no no, and not not to say no 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and not to say that that's the, like the uh, Hungarian uh, accent uh, <laughs> is equivalent to the Dracula voice, uh, but just saying that the stereotype of Dracula. Oh, you that's know, what I mean. Yeah, the stereotype. Yes, you know, I want to drink your blood. You know, like and all that, <laughs> and and you know, which it, which has been imitated by you know Count von Count on Sesame Street, which is like every, every iteration of Dracula comes from. The fact that the actor, Bela Lugosi, um, this was not his first language. And so it was never intended for Dracula to have this uh, this Hungarian accent. It was. Oh, right. That's true. In fact, in in the book, he speaks very good English. And and, uh, it, it actually another like. Another funny line now that we uh, that we know that he's a vampire. It's one of those things where he makes an excuse. He's like, "I want to go to England, and so I, Harker, I want you to stay with me. You're not going to go home immediately. You're going to stay with me uh, in my castle, kept as a prisoner. But and you're going to help teach me English." And right. Harker jumps on this immediately. He's like, "But Count, you speak English perfectly." And Dracula's kind of like, "Oh shit!" Uh, and <laughs> immediately after that, he makes like several grammatical mistakes. Just like, "Oh no, Harker, Jonathan." Oh, I mean, sorry, Jonathan Harker. I, I, you know, that's what we do in our languages. We put the patronymic first. Oh, look at this. I need your help so much. You wily Dracula. Yes. <laughs> that's what I mean. Every Again, every Hungarian I've known uh, in America speaks perfect English. <laughs> so, that, so that you, that's what I was saying. So you can't like, I don't know how to do a Hungarian accent. You know, we know how to do a French one or an Italian one or a Greek one. But what is that? And we know how to do a Dracula accent, but that is not <laughs> wow. the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. Keep. Ke- I'm going to keep going down this this road here. So (laughs) I just saw I saw this. uh, There's this game show Mm -hmm. um, called Um Actually. Do you know it? I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's nerd. It's nerd trivia, basically. Mm. And so a lot of what they do is they put purposefully incorrect information on the board. And and then you have to buzz and say, um, actually, (laughs) it's this. So so it's really great. Um, So they'll put like the name, the wrong names of um, of Star Trek planets or D&D monsters or My Little Pony characters, et cetera. And you go, oh, actually. And and recently there was a huge kerfuffle on it because uh, they described Count Von Count as a vampire-like Muppet. And then somebody rang as um, actually, he's not vampire-like, he's a vampire. And the host and the judge got into this, like, this argument on there and like we've been debating about this all week it's not the right answer 
<laughs> that's not the right answer. But we went and we looked up and we said, is Count Von Count a vampire? And I'm like, of course he fucking is. He has the teeth. He turns into a bat. Right? He, he just looks like Dracula. And so then they wrote into someone who they knew who worked at Sesame Street. And they said, our style guy says that he is not a vampire. He is vampire-like. <laughs> Oh. So apparently the children's television workshop can't have a vampire, right? They wow. have a very heavily vampire-like puppet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Keenan, this this game show sounds like the exact type of show where you would have that kind of kerfuffle. Oh my exactly. god. Exactly. So the judge the judge was like, here we go again. This shit with the vampire-like. <laughs> The eternal burning question of whether Count Von Count is actually a vampire. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's right. You know, Bart Simpson asks, asks Homer Simpson, what the hell's a Muppet? Because <laughs> it's, it's at that time period where Muppets weren't cool. Right, now they're right. cool again. Yes. And, um, and Homer says, well, they're not quite a puppet. They're not quite a mop. <laughs> but let me tell you, I need laughs and laughs. It's, oh, my God. To answer your question, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we know, I, I, I thought it was like a... Um, uh, a joining of marionette and puppet. That's, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. Marionette and puppet. Yeah, yeah. But you're smarter than Homer Simpson. Yes, on yes. That. So if I can take home anything, I am smarter <laughs> than Homer. Yeah. And now, Keenan, um, I fear that you have brought uh, this curse upon us, uh, uh, and people are going to be writing us in about uh, about Count von Count and whether or not he is an actual vampire or a muppet or, 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 or a vampire-like creature. We know oh he's. Oh my a goodness! There was another tweet. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> We'll get to the extras at some point. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. There was another tweet, you know, just a joke, funny joke tweet. Okay. That says, what's your favorite, you know, one first character, what's your favorite um, vampire? Okay. And the second guy says, Count Von Count from Sesame Street. Yeah. Um, and the other one says, he doesn't count. And then, and then he says, <laughs> I can assure you he does. <laughs> Sorry, I wish I could. I'm a really bad academic, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote people and forget which book I'm quoting, you know, so the kids can't write it down and look at. I, I wish I could do that with tweets. I don't remember who tweeted that, but oh, that is so God. funny. Oh, I really hope the mic captured that without peeking. Oh my God, that that. Thank you. Thank you for bringing in this joy, Keenan, to this otherwise joyless oh, right, section. Right, right. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, we were on subtitles. That's where. Okay, yes. we'll get back to that. Uh, but I, so. I also, I just I just want to mention, uh, I mm-hmm. think Count, Count Von Count is my favorite vampire. That he does um, count. That he does count. And <laughs> and anybody who says he's not a vampire, come at me. ExorcistMinute at gmail.com, folks. You can you can write in. Um, but be sure to listen to the show uh, as well and, yes. and give us a, a five-star rating. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Um, so anyway, that's going to be yeah, our one were... star, Keenan. That's going <laughs> to be our one star. Oh it's like Count Von no. Count is not a vampire. Da, da, da. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So subtitles weren't were really rare. Um, so they finally just figured out. Um, no, like basically, when you take a movie to Europe, they're just going to redub it with a different actor. Huh. Um, most countries in Europe do that. Uh, England doesn't, and then you know America and Canada don't. They've chosen subtitles. Mm. Um, but like in you're talking about like in primarily English language speaking films, correct? Yes. Are we subtitling? 
I've seen this up until 1960. There's a, a movie, a Greek movie, mm. or I'm sorry, an American movie by Jules Dassin, but set in Greek. And the Greek characters have no subtitles whatsoever. Mm. And, and they speak a lot of Greek. And and when you watch it, you're like, am I watching this wrong? You know, the, the DVD not load right, you know, and that's just the way it's supposed to be. So they have whole conversations with each other. And you're just meant to like, you know, they're directed with an eye that most people in the audience aren't going to be able to tell what's going on. So yeah. let's do this very clearly and, and be really clear when our main character, who's an American, mm-hmm. played by the director, Jules Dassin, is confused and when he could follow, you know. So basically, you, you cut back to him and he's like, oh, whoa. and you're like, OK, well, at least I'm not the only one. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, this guy is also confused by not having subtitles. Right. And I guess, it, yeah, I guess that that also depends on whether or not we are supposed to be with the main character who is also confused or right. like like with uh, other people who understand the language. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it's unavoidable on this podcast, but um, the Godfather also came oh. uh, out around this yeah. time. And they as keep we pulling us back in, they keep pulling us back. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, that movie has a lot of scenes with uh, people speaking in Italian, but mm-hmm. as far as I can remember, there's only that one scene like in the restaurant with the subtitles, right? Oh, that one. I, I believe there's a little bit more with Apollonia's father in Sicily. But not everything in Sicily is subtitled. Yeah. I also, I, I remember someone making a remark, um, it might have been a, a professor, that whenever there are two or more like Europeans in a scene, um, and they're all like the same uh, uh, flavor of European, uh, they just speak English, uh, usually with like a British accent. And we just sort of <laughs> right. understand that they're speaking French or German or whatever it is they're supposed to be speaking. But mm-hmm. since there's no one around who doesn't speak that language, they just left it to be like English for us. Right. So American actors have to get their their British accent on in order to play a Frenchman or a, uh, a Dane. Right. Because it's just that much removed. It's like, oh, it's it's you know, it's it's from another country. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the counter to that is uh, whenever you want to make someone um, exotic or, or evil, um, you have them speak a different language than the one the main characters are speaking. And the choice to add subtitles or not, I guess, depends on how uh, in the dark the director wants us uh, to be like you were saying, Keenan. Yeah, that makes sense. But I guess it would be about this mid seventies point. So it's actually in the late fifties and sixties where, uh, Americans start watching foreign films, or at least a certain subset of Americans do. So, the the audience splits from basically during the classical period everybody goes to see the same movies and it's it's like television basically you go down and whatever's playing at the movie theater is what you watch you don't really pick and choose very much right so basically the movies are aimed at everybody mm. then after the war and into the late 1950s the audience starts to split so we have on one side like families who are going to see movies and so those things need to be squeaky clean really expensive looking um so mary poppins sound of music my fair lady you know um that that has something for the adults but also is appropriate for the children yeah yeah um so uh the ten commandments you know like that kind of thing cleopatra and then the other audience is a younger hipper um it's often shorthanded as like college kids uh but it's sometimes but it's also like urban elites you know people who have had gone to college that kind of thing and they they like smaller um dirtier nastier movies with you know uh content in them like r-rated content before we had the term r-rated content yeah and they can't really get that from hollywood so they watch foreign films because that's deal- the foreign films like bergman films mm. are dealing with um sex and drugs and loss of faith and um cynicism uh, abortion uh, affairs homosexuality all that stuff so the audience kind of splits and so that younger hipper more educated crowd starts to see foreign films and they get used to reading subtitles 
And then in the 1970s, there is still that split, but but then we have the blockbuster era of major, basically the confluence of art films with uh, genre films. So The Godfather, The Exorcist, Jaws, Star Wars, etc. And so it, I, I guess I haven't thought about this question before you asked, but that would make sense that that's why in the mid-1970s, we start having major American films that do have subtitles. Yeah. So um, I hope I'm right in my research because you just made me think of it now. <laughs> but in the, yeah, because you're thinking of The Godfather, um, by the end of the decade, we'll have Annie Hall. And there's the, that famous scene where Annie and Alvy are on something like their first date. It's the first time they're back at her house. Yeah. And they're talking to each other and they're, they're having an awkward conversation. And we get subtitles underneath them of what they're really thinking like oh god he thinks i'm an idiot right, right. <laughs> you know so we, ha- we have things like that um within a few years we have airplane where we have uh, our two young hip black characters who are speaking jive quote unquote mm-hmm. and we have that subtitled for us mm. <laughs> so we start having you know one you know once you could see parodies of something then yeah. it's clear that that's become a convention because otherwise who is that joke for right yeah yeah so it must have been going on uh enough for us to notice it's like oh they're they're making a joke about the subtitles thank you very much keenan um i always love the these, uh, these little delvings into uh, cinema history. This is always great. Well, yeah, you really, you made me think about that. So now I'm going to have to look and, and double check my, the thesis I just came up here. So, uh, you know, hopefully people can, you know, if the, if you find that I'm wrong, that's great. <laughs> go, go and look at those things. But yeah, I think it would be the combination of these two audiences in the 1970s coming back to watch the same movies. That would be my guess. Yeah. And, it, and again, if you find that Keenan is wrong, uh, please write in because uh, we'd love to hear from you. And it's a requirement for this one. You have to start uh, your email with, um, actually. <laughs> um so again i love the opening to this scene we have mother and son reunited mom is so happy to see damien um which again i think eh, sort of makes this like more heartbreaking because we see how Karis feels guilty about his mother living here alone a world away I, what did we say like four and a half hours away right mm-hmm. if i could i'd like to read from the screenplay here uh, oh yes. that deals with some of the stuff from before in our previous minute but just how we describe this life that um that mary has and and what it's like for um for damien to go back to his neighborhood with all of the readings of the screenplay so far there's some of it that is very similar to the to the book obviously um sometimes blatty is just copying and pasting or you know not literally because he's doing a typewriter (laughs) right um but i guess i'd love to read this a little of course yeah a reading from the screenplay of blatty oh and i do want to point out um that this scene here is what do we say minute 20 this is substantially later in the original screenplay Um, we have a lot of scenes of chris and reagan uh, right i noticed that before we we see um mary Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm Exterior, high shot, East 21st Street in New York City, day, between 1st and 2nd Avenues. Karis walks despondently along the south side of the street, which is studded with decrepit tenement buildings. He pauses before one and with melancholy sees his past in the raggedly clothed, grime-covered, foul-mouthed urchins pitching pennies against the stoop. Karis looks at the front door. He starts up the steps. Interior hall, Karis outside mother's apartment door. Cutting, we find the camera stationed by an apartment front door, train on Karis mounting steps at far end of hall. He approaches and lightly raps. From within, we hear faint sound of a radio turn to news station. Karis waits a moment, then digs out keys from pants pocket, opens door like an aching wound, and enters. Interior, tenement apartment day. The radio now more audible. We're in a railroad flat kitchen. Tiny. Cracked plaster and peeling wallpaper. Unkempt. Sparse and ancient furnitures. In the kitchen, a small tub for bathing. Faded old newspapers spread on the uncarpeted floor. As Karis enters, he breathes in an aching sigh as his gaze brushes around at the painful reminders of his past. Then he glances to right, from which we hear sound of radio. He puts down valise and starts into bedroom. Karis, Mama? No response. Camera follows him into squalid living room. 
Karis now sees his mother, fully dressed, sleeping on a torn and grease-stained old sofa, on her right cheek a prominent mole. He observes her for a moment, sighs as he removes raincoat. As he drapes it over a chair, his mother awakens with a slight start, sees him, reacts with surprise and joy, speaking with a thick Mediterranean accent. Mother, dear me. She hastily gets to feet and throws arm around Karis. Oh, Dimmy, I'm so glad to see you. Great. Yeah. So we definitely see, you know, Blatty, Blatty the novelist choosing to spend a lot of time describing what this space feels like. He doesn't always. Um, so he's he's this is an Oscar winning screenplay. He's been a screenwriter for a very long time. He doesn't he doesn't slow down the movie every time we enter a new space like this. This seems to be very, very important to him to get this right about yeah. the loneliness and, and the the that she's living in this space that gives the sense that things have been wrong for decades. Yeah, this has been a while. This is this is an old, um, as actually to quote Blatty again a little bit later in the book, uh, uh, Karis reflects, he says, this grief was old. Mm. And to that point, we know that uh, she doesn't get many visitors. Um, and how do we know this? We know this because in the next scene, Karis is at the table. Mom has fixed up something for him and uh, she's uh, sitting and watching him eat. Again, this is so, whew, the the first thing she does, Keenan, the first thing she she does is make him something to eat. She can barely move around. She shouldn't be moving around as we come to find. But the first thing she does when her son comes to see her is make him something. And I can see this scene, even though uh, it's not in the book or the movie, even though Blatty didn't pen a word of it, I can see her bustling around, uh, you know, getting out the olives and the cheese and him like, no, mama, sit down and her like swatting him away. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she's sitting uh, and then he's sitting there eating. Um, and quick break uh let's let's take a look at this food um because i i want to like avoid talking about this but um i love food in film uh and i can't be the only one who like focuses on it whenever it's present in film people who yeah there's blogs about like meals of of cinema yeah it's got to be um even even one like i found online because i was looking i was trying to find what this specific dish was and there's this website called food in film Mm. um and it didn't um I, i i'm still unsure about uh, exactly what this is. Um, but before we get to that, Keenan, do you have like a, a, a favorite food in film like scene? Oh my, the, the, the first thing I think of is, is Ratatouille. Um, yes. Where, you know, we were just talking about that in my, in my class actually. So in Ratatouille, we get this fantastic description of what it is to be a food artist because uh, Remy, his name is not Ratatouille. His name is Remy. <laughs> <laughs> Remy um, is describing to his brother Emil and, and he's at the very beginning, like these foods have different feelings to them. And then the way that they, they cinematize that is that they essentially uh, imply or they give Remy synesthesia, you know? Um, so synesthesia is, is, is this idea that some people experience what, we typically experience in one of our senses, they experience it across their senses. There's probably a better description of it than that, that you could look up. But there are some people who um, musical notes have have texture to them. Um, certain letters have color, uh, you know, and, and we had been thinking about that, you know, not me, but <laughs> uh, we had been treating that as some illness of theirs, you know. And now we're more seeing that's, a, that's like a superpower, right? It's like amazing that you have this. So they give Remy synesthesia, essentially. And he's like, when I taste this cheese, it feels electric. And then we see electricity on it. And we taste this this strawberry and it feels like swirls and we see the swirls. So um, so I think when they were creating it, they were just trying to find like this really visual cinematic way of doing it. But I think um, 
retroactively, we look and they have made Remy neurodivergent in some mm, way. Interesting. Um, without me- maybe meaning to. And I was telling that to my students in class, and a lot of them were like, oh, I. I have, you know, this or that, like, uh, I forget what it was. And I don't necessarily want to give away people's private, but they were like, oh, when I numbers to me or the, the alphabet feels like this or that. And I said, oh, you might want to look into it. You might have this superpower called synesthesia. And more than a couple of them were like, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> like I, like I have that. <laughs> so, so maybe look that up if you can. And then at the end, you know, Ratatouille pretty well, I, I yeah. imagine. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The last shot of, um, of Anton Ego when he eats yes. the ratatouille and we go into his eye mm-hmm. and experiencing it from his point of view, yeah. that that floors me every single time. When you watch it in context, like having seen an hour and 20 minutes of the movie and hating that character. And we then, know we know what type of uh, – or we've been presented uh, one side of this character right. throughout the whole movie. Yeah. Right. And you, oh God, it's good. I might get too moved. <laughs> but then you go into his mind and it really – and then you see him as a child and see – that warmth that his mother had for him and what food means to him and all this stuff that, that obviously the movie is more elegant than my words describing it, but, but it just, it just knocks me away every single time I see it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is everybody. Like if you haven't seen it, I love how we're recommending other movies on the, (laughs) (laughs) but no, definitely go see, go see Ratatouille because it's, Uh, it's very good. My friends and I debate like what's the best uh, Pixar movie. And Mm. I think the safe choices are Wally and up, you know, Mm -hmm -hmm. I think that's the safe choices, but then we're like, but every time we go back and watch Ratatouille, uh, it it goes right back to the top of the list. Nothing against up and Wally, which are, you know, genius films. Yeah. Go see those two. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. You don't have to pick one. It's not, you're not on a desert island. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? Do you have a favorite food memory in, in film? You know, the funny thing is I had this in my notes to ask you and mm-hmm. I just didn't even bother thinking one of myself. But um, <laughs> I like I think <clears throat> ones that stand out to me, um, you know, from a very young age, it, it's always cartoons. I think for some mm. reason, I don't know if, if it's because of the, the, the colors are brighter or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the food just looks, you know, the best it can possibly look um, or or, you know, like the sound work or whatever. But like, yeah, it's always it's always cartoons. And you know, like the first one that I that I think of is. Lady and the Tramp, and uh, when they're eating the spaghetti, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he rolls the little meatball over there, and it's just like, oh, man, I want some spaghetti right now so much. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's, like, impossibly long and and fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not just the flavor of it. It's the experience of it and, like, being with somebody and – Oh yeah. Yeah. Or when, uh, they're eating pizza in, uh, all dogs go to heaven, you know, <laughs> and they have that, like with the, the cheese just stretches on forever. Mm. Right. Um, you know, all of those, all of those, uh, uh, movies, I think cartoons do it really well. They make food kind of like almost exaggerated to the point of, uh, absurdity, but like, it's, it's like, that's, that's what you taste. That's, that's in your mind. Um, yeah. If you want to ruin it for yourselves. So if you don't like ruining things for yourselves, don't do this, but if you can look at behind the scenes of what a food stylist does on a commercial, Oh yes. Um, and, and with the kind of inedible things they're making so that, that, um, that long stretch in the, in the pizza hut commercials of that cheese, it's not cheese, it's glue. Yeah. yeah, Literally glue. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's, yeah, it's like, it's the, the bread is bolted down to the table. <laughs> Literally, glue um, maple syrup on pancakes and commercials is motor oil. <laughs> mm. But no, no, it like and and I mean it works. You know, it's a you know through the lens of uh, of the camera. You know, it, it translates it beautifully. And uh, you know, hey, we don't he- have to eat that glue pizza, um, <laughs> but we can we can call uh, pizza. Wow, we're sponsoring just like so many. Oh, Pizza Hut again. Yeah, pizza there we Hut. go. Right. Come, come um, yeah. Yeah. Pizza Hut, Coke. Come on, guys. Like, <laughs> h- how can you pass up a, a podcast like this? <laughs> um, 
Anyway, uh, but yeah. Uh, oh, and, and, like speaking of pizza, Home Alone. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. You know, Little Nero's. Like, you gotta have little Nero's. And I, how old was I? I was way too, uh, I was I was much older than I should have been to realize like, oh, haha, little Nero's, ha, huh. okay. Oh, I just got that now, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, a John go. Hughes joke that I yeah. just got explained to me. Thank you, Lester. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah, um, uh, Little Caesars also, like, hey, you know. Pizza, uh, pizza. Yeah, pizza, pizza. Okay, so I looked all over for uh, what this this food in our scene could mm-hmm. be, um, specifically the main dish uh, that he's dipping the bread into, and I'm guess like it could be uh, tzatziki, um, you know, some some type of yogurt. Uh, but I'm also seeing chunks of stuff in there, like maybe potatoes. So it could be a stew, maybe. Um, oh yeah, I wonder. Yeah, um, he's dipping the bread in there, uh, and close at hand we get uh, we got some more bread, uh, some olives, and what looks like uh, some brie. Oh, that that would be feta, I think. Oh, okay. Well, there Greek, we go. Yeah. Ah, okay. It's like a hard. It's 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 very it's crumbly, you know. Okay. Hmm. My boyfriend taught me this term. I, I wish I could remember Italian. He's a music major, or was a music major, and he so he knows a lot of Italian and German and French that I don't because he had to sing it. But he um, he talks about when when at the end of an Italian meal, at least um, you have the bread loaf and you, you you take the crust of the bread and it has you know that that rounded part on the top of the loaf, right? Mm-hmm. And to basically, if you break the, a, a crust of bread in half, it looks like little shoes. Oh, so in okay. Italy they'll call that they'll say what well, we make the little shoes the scarpetto and then that's what we use to eat the sauce is the little shoes. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Oh and my we were we were um, we were at this Italian restaurant in LA downtown. Oh, that I hope is still there, but you know with COVID things are bad. And um, there's this woman who who came out as our waitress and she had a thick Italian accent. And you know in LA and you you you're in LA sometimes you wonder like. Is it is it a real Italian accent? Right. You know? mm-hmm. Or is this like, hey, we're at an Italian restaurant. Here's my waitress. She's an actor, and she's right. she's trying to you know get better tips, etc. And so I was worried about this. My boyfriend uh, s- speaks to her in Italian mm-hmm. uh, as far as he can to describe and make getting more bread for the shoes. And she looks at him, and and he and he repeats it and is like, uh, you know, slower this time and, and pronounces it scarpetto. And and we're looking. And I'm like, oh god, he's he's accidentally like embarrassed this oh, no. <laughs> this woman <laughs> who doesn't speak Italian. Oh no! But then she says, oh yes, to make the little shoes. Oh, I'll be back. Like, oh thank God. <laughs> secondhand embarrassment is not what I want for this Eesh. poor woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, and and. Who knows? Like it could have been like um, maybe a regional thing too. Like I right. mean, you know, maybe maybe she maybe she did speak Italian, and he's he's talking about something that like maybe only a certain specific. Right, uh, and I think you his know. you know his accent you know from college years ago. And, mm-hmm. But anyways, luckily she was really Italian. <laughs> well, there we go. And then yeah. yeah, we get these shots right of of him him eating alone. I think it's really sort of sad that she has to places at the table, you know, when no one ever comes to visit her, like, like she has two chairs there. And then we see her watching him in this rocking chair and just yeah. so happy he's there. She doesn't have to eat herself. Right. And um, I can like, again, I can, I can see that scene too. It's like, mama, are you going to, are you going to, oh, no, 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 no. And you know, it might be right that, oh, I don't want to eat, but it's more likely, right? Like this is, we only have enough for one person, right? She's like forgoing a meal for herself. Oh God, Keenan, I didn't even <laughs> think about that. <laughs> well, why would she have, you know, a, a, a grown man size meal, right? She I don't know because, because she wants to see her son eat. I don't know. Oh, but he doesn't, he doesn't it. come over. So she only has enough in the refrigerator for herself. But. <sighs> 
Anyways, I wanted to talk about what I like about this scene is that, as I said in the last minute, we see Father uh, Father Karras like stripping off of his um, his uh, his uniform, right, and becoming more like a, a regular looking guy, and now he's more like a son. Um, and I think it strikes me as being so different from how we've seen priests in movies before that. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of famous movies about priests from the classical days. So we have Boys Town with Spencer Tracy from 1939 that he won an Oscar for. We have Bing Crosby in uh, Going My Way, which he won an Oscar for. And then um, the sequel, The Bells of St. Mary, which is what um, uh, Diane Keaton and Al Pacino go to on their date in The Godfather. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and and um, we have uh, like... Father Barry in On the Waterfront, who's played by Carl Malden. And these characters, like these are like stalwart men. They're always in uniform, right? They're always, they're always priests. And most of the time, we don't get an inkling of their of their personal life, let alone um their family life. That's so separate. Um so all of those movies, even though those characters, like especially with um Bing Crosby and um and Spencer Tracy, they are the main characters and it's about them going into the community and helping people who need it. The movie starts when they come into the space. So we don't see them outside of their work as a priest. Right. We don't see them going back. We don't see them. So n- not even the questions of doubt, which which sometimes is there in some of those older movies, but just seeing what a priest looks like when they are not at church or not serving the community. Because um, it's always, you know, um, <laughs> it's always Bing Crosby, you know, meeting with these kids is well maria you sure have a lot of problems and uh makes me think of a little song let me he's at the piano yeah and and they're always they're always on right because that's their job and a part of those movies is you know having a reverence for them in their job and not and not making them seem human right and i mean like actually to to that point there is a part in the book that i that i think is unintentionally funny or maybe just mm-hmm. like like sweet and cute when Karis finally uh, ends up going to uh, Chris's home. Uh, she kind of like turns back to him, um, you know, before he he enters that room, that room that we're going to talk about. Um, and she turns back to him. And it's like, uh, shouldn't you, uh, uh, you know, don't you want to go in with your priest clothes? Mm-hmm. Um, because he's not, he's not dressed. He's not in uniform. Right. Um, and, uh, and he says uh, like, it's, it's meant as a joke. He's like too risky. Um <laughs> And it, like, you know, this is just to, he's, he's at this point, he's appeasing her. He's just going in to, to see this girl. He's not, right. uh, he, he, he doesn't even think, well, I don't know what he thinks yet, but, uh, but yeah, but I like, I like that line of like too risky. Um, right. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then also to that, but like, there's a, there's another, uh, uh, moment in the book where Chris is having a party and it, tell me if you do this, Keenan. Um, but she has a party with uh, a bunch of different people, a bunch of like uh, these, you know, these, these uh, um, uh, notable uh, people. One of them mm-hmm. is an astronaut. Right. And um, I don't know if you know where I'm going with this, Keenan, but uh, whenever I, I read a book where, you know, there's a group of people and one of them is an astronaut or a fireman in my head, I cannot, I cannot help but think of like everybody else is at this party and they're just wearing normal clothes. And then you got this astronaut walking <laughs> I, that that's never occurred to me, but of course, <laughs> okay, he so wants maybe you to know me. he's an astronaut. He sure. wants you to know. 
but no, Keenan, I've read this book. I don't know how many times. Every time I read it, I have a little chuckle because it's like, oh yeah, Chris is throwing this party, and uh, you know, she's got this uh, this priest who is wearing you know priest clothes, mm-hmm. and she's got this uh, this this uh, senator, and he's, she's got this uh, other person, and this astronaut who's just kind of in the background, just you know, like he's walking in slow motion. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, okay. <laughs> But um, yeah, uh, getting back to our scene now, uh, we come to find that mom doesn't get many visitors like you were talking about, uh, Keenan. Um, Damien's uncle, John, her brother, came by to see her a month ago. And just the fact that she's bringing this up means that it was maybe a rare occurrence. Um, right. And you can see Damien's reaction to that. He sort of he sort of pauses as he's taking a drink and he looks down and he nods, right? Um, so he's, he's kind of like uh, taking it in that, yeah, she... She doesn't get a lot of visitors, right? And he 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 sort of knew this, right? Um, and this means that this is the first time Damien has heard about it, uh, which means he hasn't been over there in at least a month, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which also means, oh my God, whatever is going on with Mary's leg, we're going to see it in a second here, has been going on for that long as well because Karis already knew about it, right? That's the first thing he asks at the beginning of this scene. He says, how's your leg, mm-hmm. right? <sighs> and so, yeah, let's, uh, let's go to that scene. Um, Okay. Uh, Karis is uh, bandaging her leg or, or maybe just like wrapping it up. I don't know. Do we think this is a, a sprained leg or a broken leg or she's just like older and it, it pains her? Right. Uh, in the screenplay, he has a, a scene with the uncle and oh. they are describing it. And the uncle says that she has edema, which is a swelling, you know, a retaining of fluids. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's what it must be. Huh. Um, <clears throat> and I want to say this right here. This is some amazing acting by uh, Vasiliki Maliaros. Um, there's so many subtle expressions going on uh, in this scene. And again, all from someone who this is their this is her first and only role. But she knows how to convey these very, very subtle emotions. Um, Damien is, is wrapping it. He asks her if it's too tight and she says no. But you can see in her face that that she is in pain and she's trying to not show this to her mm-hmm. son. Right. Um, he tells her that uh, she has to stay off the leg. She can't go up and down those stairs. Those stairs freaking made sure to show us as right. Damien is, is walking up right in the previous minute. Um, imagine this poor lady going up and down those stairs with with no one to help her. Right. Um, so she says, OK, she'll stay off it. But I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, I read this as like she says, OK, to sort of like appease him. But, you know, she's she's going to do what she's got to do, because who, who else is going to do it, Damien? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think he knows that. And I think this is a scene that has played out before, which, again, makes it all the more heartbreaking. Um, and the next thing he says is also probably something that they've gone over many and many a time. Right. Mm-hmm. He wants to take her somewhere safe where, you know, she wouldn't be alone, you know, listening to that radio. And you see her whole face change again. It's so great. As, as soon as uh, he's done with her leg, her hand goes up to rest her head. But then when he starts talking about moving her out, that hand goes down and that stern look appears. And again, this is something that actors I've seen in LA have trouble with, right? Mm-hmm. So much so that like they teach whole classes about it. And, and that is reacting to somebody else's line, right? So many times actors are just like standing there, not hearing what the other actor is saying, not listening, just sort of waiting for their turn to speak. But you see this beautiful performance uh, from Vasiliki as she realizes, oh, here we go again. My right. son is talking about moving me out, right? And she leans forward and she says, Akusa Demi, which, which means listen to me, Demi, right? And then she says in Greek, and I, and I checked, she says, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going anywhere. This is my house. Right. Uh, wow. Yeah. It, it's, 
it's a lot of first uh, actors problems or young actors. And I mean like inexperienced actors rather Mm -hmm. that they, that they think the most important thing is, you know, how many lines do you have in the school play? I have the most lines. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the most important thing. How am I saying this? Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know, um, Juliet has more lines than the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, but the nurse is a much better part. Oh my God, by far, <laughs> right, by, by far. far, right, far. And you have trouble convincing um, young actors of that sometimes. Again, inexperienced actors is what I mean. That's what they say in the industry, which is really um, demeaning. They'll call them young actors when they just mean experience, baby writers, meaning that they haven't um, sold anything yet, stuff like that. So sorry, my Hollywood asshole speak uh, was coming in there. But, but yeah, here we have an inexperienced actor who yeah, is doing all the things you would want from an old pro. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and that is where our minute ends. And we'll pick up uh, in the next minute uh, with her saying the same thing in English, uh, perhaps to give us uh, or perhaps to give it some emphasis and, of course, to help our audience. Um, but for now, I, th- I think that's all the notes I have. Keenan, do you have anything else that uh, you want to add? For this no, minute? I think we got it. All right. Okay. So, Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Okay, folks, until next time. The, the power, power of Count von Count, Count compels, compels you. you. Ah, ah, ah. 21, 21 minutes. Ah, 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 ah.